0: In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him and ate in his presence. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die.
1: Father, thank you that you always give us enough. Thank you for the testimony of Jesus, his signs and his works. And Lord, thank you even for the abominable acts committed by King David. We pray that you would teach us as we think about them, as we reflect on them, and draw us closer to yourself. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Welcome again to St. Bartholomew's. We're here, we're on a journey of what it means to become fully human. It is ordinary time, in case you didn't know. Ordinary time is that, that season where we use the color green to mark the life of God being born in and through us. And if you were, you've heard me say it many times over, but I'll say it again ordinary time is like that time uh, of a season of the year where you look at a tree and you watch it grow and you realize, oh, that tree is just like it was last year. But then you realize over a span of two, three, four years that no, it's actually not. It's been growing almost imperceptibly. And that's why this is a reminder that God's work in us, sometimes difficult. Oftentimes challenging, but always good and beautiful, always restorative, always bringing to bear the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, our Lord, into our lives. That's the kind of life that we're walking in. That's what we're stepping into. And in this season, right now, we're in a series called Becoming a People or Becoming St. Bartholomew's. We're looking at the people of Israel and specifically the story of the monarchy in First and Second Samuel. And how Israel went to this this band of tribes, then to a people with a king, Saul, then King David, and tonight we have our first uh, episode in David's downward spiral. But we're trying to glean what can we learn as a new church, what can we learn as a new people from the life of Israel in this stage of Israel's life. This is a difficult passage. It's, It's a story that I shake my head at. Because as a, as a person who loves music and poetry, and who one day maybe aspired to be a fighter, a, 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 to lead a band of men uh, on a fight across the Ammonite Plains, just kidding, David is, is a real figurehead. He's someone that I look to and I really admire. And then, you know, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is always there. It's never not going to be there. The thing that I want us to focus on tonight is a really simple phrase, and that is, when enough is not enough. When enough is not enough. And we'll look at David, we'll look at Israel, and we'll look at Jesus and the disciples too. But for us, and and kind of bear in mind, for us as a church, as St. Bartholomew's, think about when enough is not enough. Now, it's easy to see that David had enough. Enough of what, Jay? Well, he had enough fame, He had enough notoriety, he had enough possessions, he had enough wives and other female friends as kings in those days did. He had plenty when uh, we used to tell the kids when they were younger, hey, you've got plenty like that, like it's okay, you don't need any more food. And so every time I would read this passage and think about it, you've got enough, David, like, hey, it's enough, David, you don't need any more. But when enough is not enough, bad things can happen. Success can lead to hubris. We'll jump into that in a second. The life-giving rhythms of life that we have can be squelched. And worse, the grip of faith on us and in us loosens. And holiness, the stark picture of holiness, especially for the people of Israel, where God said, you are my peculiar people. I will use you to show people all around you that you are holy unto me, that you're different, that you're set apart. When enough is not enough, that grip of faith loosens in us and that holiness blurs. The separation between us and the world, those dividing lines, are, they, they fall apart. And I want you to notice that all three of these things, that success can lead to hubris, um, that the life-giving rhythms are squelched, and that the grip of faith loosens. All three of these things have to do with vision. When enough is not enough, our vision somehow is skewed, even if it's just to a degree. I was told by a former army officer, he said in their map reading class, if you were off one degree when you set your coordinates and your field compass and took off down a path, if you were off just one degree, you would end up in a vastly different location than you were meant to end up. And that's what we see here. The priest king, the one who went to extravagant expense in logistical planning to create this worshipful procession to bring the ark back and bring it to Jerusalem. The one who brought in the final descendant of Saul's house, Mephib- Mephibosheth, this, this crippled and lame man, brought him into his house, set him at the king's table so that he could show God's kindness and love to him. The one to whom God said, your house will be established forever. Your line will be established. And your throne will reign forever. I've given, I've set upon you my love, my steadfast, faithful covenant love. How could this happen? How could this priest king, this one who was going to guard Israel so well, this one who finally, unlike Adam, unlike Noah, unlike Abraham, yada, 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 go down the line, unlike all the other kings or leaders of Israel before, this one was going to do it differently. So much so that he would prefigure the Messiah who would come, Jesus, that king we sang about and sang to earlier. Well notice in 2 Samuel, just before this episode with Bathsheba happens, we we see orthodoxy kind of disappearing. And remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about orthodoxy is not so much believing the right dogma as if you look at the word etymologically, orthodoxy, right praise or right glory or right worship. And remember what we talked about? When well, we live in that posture of orthodoxy, of standing face to face with God, this, face of, this uh, posture of adoration, we breathe in his divine life and we breathe out his praise. And in that orthodoxy, our lives can be ordered. It brings together our lives as individuals, as families and communities, as a society. So, orthodoxy can, right worship brings about this right living, this sort of order. But notice in the book of 2 Samuel, the worship has disappeared. The last thing that David does that reflects being a man after God's own heart is inviting Mephib- Mephibosheth, golly, I can't say the name, Mephibosheth to his table. And then we get to chapter 10, and it's all about battle. And I just have to think that. In David's mind, and in David's heart, all these things had been accumulated. Now I'm reading into this. So hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is is Jay's version of this. So David has all these successes. And then Joab, he goes out to fight. And they can't handle it. And the Ammonites had conscripted the Syrians. And it's all this whole long shanks thing happening. And they're fighting. And they need David. So they call David out. Because only David can save us. So David may have this sort of savior complex, because when he goes out, they slay 700 of their horsemen and 40,000 chariots and all this kind of stuff. So David has success. He has victory. And somehow, the enough that he had been given, the providence that God had run over in his cup, it was not enough. Because this success, instead of being received as a blessing from God, instead of this divine breath coming in and praise coming out, instead we see hubris. I read somewhere that the definition of hubris is knowing that something is wrong and doing it anyway. Not meaning wrong morally, but that's just the wrong decision. Well, I don't care. Webster's Dictionary defines it as overweening arrogance. But I like my definition better, the one I read somewhere. So you know that something is not the right thing to do, but you do it anyway. Because enough was not enough for David. His successes led to hubris. Now notice what happens. In the spring, the time of the year when kings go out to war. What a beautifully poetic phrase. But it's so tragic because it's about to unleash this this episode, this saga on us. So David sees Bathsheba. One, you know, one thing leads to another. He knows, he knows he's not supposed to do this. He knows he's not supposed to call for her, but he does. Hubris. Then, after their time together, she finds out that she has conceived a child. The hubris gets worse because the plotting is, is horrendous. And The stinging irony of reading Psalm 14, a psalm attributed to David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. All are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is none who does any good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon us all to see if there is any who is wise, if there is one who seeks after God. Where was that? (laughs) When David sent for Joab... And after Uriah, faithful to his company of men, faithful to the army of Israel, would not go and be with his wife while he was on leave for that brief time, even after David got him drunk, David sends a letter by the hand of Uriah that he should be killed. When enough is not enough, when we don't have the vision of seeing that everything God has given us is good, it is right, it's to be received with thanksgiving, and it is enough. The successes that we have in life can lead to hubris. Not only that, but the life giving rhythms that we may have established for ourselves or even received from our forebears, those can be squelched. See, the time when kings went out to war, this was something that David needed to do. He needed to go out and ride with his armies. He needed to go out and check on things. He was not where he should have been. That's half the trouble sometimes, isn't it? Just be where you're supposed to be, showing up is half the battle, etc. But David, instead of living in that life-giving rhythm that he had received or inherited, instead of that, he was home. And he was in a place where he probably knew he was going to see some things that he probably shouldn't see. Those life-giving rhythms can be squelched when enough is not enough. Hmm. Starkly absent from this account in the chapters before it are those moments and notes of praise. Are those refrains that would give us the clue that he had this vision of a divine God, that yes, he's the king of Israel, but there is one true king of Israel, the Lord, his God. The notable exception from tonight's lessons about success leading to hubris is Jesus. Did you notice that phrase in John chapter 6? So Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And that's just men. So there's probably seven, eight, eight, 10,000 people there. Who knows? If he's like us, he would you know, add another 1,000 or 2 to it. Just, just pad the numbers a little bit. Jesus has tremendous success. So much so that he knows, he perceives, that the people are going to make him what? King. The people are still longing for a king. They're still longing for that order, for that ruler, for the one who will do it righteously, who will do it like David once did it and should have been doing it. But notice the next phrase in John chapter 6. It's in your bulletin, page 5. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Just when Jesus could have, you know, insert your phrase capitalized on the momentum, monetized uh, all the attention, scaled that business to make it a global business. I mean, insert the thing, whatever our culture right now is obsessed with, Jesus didn't do it. But what did he do? He took up that life giving rhythm. He went up to the mountain. And we know he just didn't go up to the mountain because he liked to keep a journal of what rocks there are up there. He went up the mountain to be with the Father. Success, when when enough is not enough, success can lead to hubris. Life-giving rhythms can be squelched. But when enough is enough, we know the fountain and the source from which it comes. So Jesus knows his time to be made king is not yet. His coronation will be on a cross. It will be on the Mount of Olives at his ascension. When enough is not enough, bad things happen. And lastly, when enough is not enough, the grip of faith loosens. Holiness blurs. Do you remember why Saul was rejected as king? Well, he was rejected from the get-go because the people of Israel said, we want a king just like all the other nations have a king. And so in their minds, remember we talked about this several weeks ago, they were looking for legitimacy. They were looking for significance. Hey, we were established here. We've got all of our tribes. All the other nations have a king. We need a king. And Saul would be the king like the kings of the other nations. Which means he was not set apart. Which means his heart was after something else. Kingly things, power, accumulating stuff, winning battles. All things that David did. But David was different. How? Because he was a king and a man after God's heart. Saul was rejected because he was no different than a king of any other nation around them. He could not help Israel be a priestly people, a people to, to whom God could point and say, look, these are my people. They keep my words. They keep my law. A people through whom God would mediate his love to all nations of the earth. Saul couldn't do that. Now, David, this king, this priest king, this leader after God's own heart is conspiring is killing, is committing adultery, is doing things that every other king in the ancient Near East would do. When enough is not enough, that means I'm supposed to finish up, when enough is not enough, that grip of faith, that guiding vision that David would have had, it's loosened. And because of that, his behavior change. his desires change, his behaviors change. And when that, that grip of faith loosens, and when that vision of the unseen reality that God is drawing us to, when that loosens, we can't redirect our desires. They overcome us. They overwhelm us until finally we succumb to them. Holiness goes out the window. Again, holiness is not doing the right thing for the right thing's sake. It's being different because God has called us to such, because God is different. When enough is not enough, the grip of faith loosens and holiness blurs. Hmm. Think about God's provision in your life right now. It may seem abundant, it may seem like He's providing you with nothing but the bread of anguish and tears. Indeed, sometimes his provision is suffering, difficulty, frustration, loneliness. But when we we draw our eyes away from God as being the provider of our very lives, not just our livelihood, but the very breath that we breathe, When we forget that, then enough cannot be enough. Our minds will wander. Soon thereafter, our hearts will wander. Our behavior will diminish. And we can look at ourselves, and instead of growing like a big, beautiful, live oak tree, providing shade, providing beauty, soothing the soul of all who pass by, we can look like a big, ugly, dead birch because we've forgotten that everything that God gives us is enough. It's to be received with thanksgiving. And how will we respond as a church, as St. Bartholomew's, as we experience success? Now, and the the next question immediately is, well, what do we define as success? It's easy for church guys, people in the church business, to say, well, butts and seats and budgets, man. You can point to that, but that is not what success is. I, I promise you, there's, there's story after story after story of churches with butts and seats and budgets where hubris takes over, where these rhythms of life, like weekly worship, and not just like phoning it in weekly worship, but really, really being together in worship, where the grip of faith is loosened and holiness is blurred. Hmm. I define success, there's many ways you can define it, but I love to see transformed lives. If God is speaking to you through his scriptures, through worship, through somebody else that you've met at at St. Bartholomew's, But if you look back at your life and you see that God has done transformation, even if it's at a small degree, remember how significant one degree can be, and if he has performed transformation in your life, then that is a huge success. That is a cause for a party. Hmm. God has planted us here in East Dallas to issue forth that call that he's given to us to be St. Bartholomew's. Remember, it has to do with vision. What will our vision be? Will it be just to be another church with butts and seats and budgets? Well, once we get our own building, then, then you know, once we do this, once we do that. Or will it be to be a people who are faithful to the worship of God, to the preaching of his word, to mission, to sending out people, just like God draws people in, to those five parts of Saint, that vision of St. Bartholomew. It's, it's a lot like agriculture. We're farming. We're toiling day after day. God calls us, each of us, from our own Galilee, this place that's overlooked and forgotten, he calls us into a, a, a way to be fully human, living in the freedom of the children of God, creating in us a people who love what he command, who desire what he promise, and preach what St. Bartholomew taught, and love who he believed. A people who, when God says go, whether it's across the street, across the room, or across the world, we will go, just like St. Bartholomew did. So the question, how will we measure success, To me, the answer to that is, are we remaining faithful to to the vision that God has given St. Bartholomew's? To be sure, this passage is a warning. It's a warning for us as individuals. It's a warning for us as a church. It's a reminder that we are not beyond anything. That, as the popular saying goes, there but by the grace of God go I. So we pray for God's grace. We pray to remain faithful and to remember that what God has given us is enough. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, we are sobered by the actions of King David. We are sobered as a people called St. Bartholomew's, a young people We beg you to keep our mind and our hearts, our resources, our attention, our energy, our focus on the heavenly vision that you have given us, to put our hand to the plow and not to look back. Lord, we we know that we can only do this by the inspiration and the filling and the power of your Spirit to remind us of who our Lord Jesus is. And remind us, Father, that everything you've given us, all that you have is ours right now. And that we've been with you this whole time. And you've been with us. Help us, strengthen us, and protect us, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.